Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney, a mental health podcast, but without all the bollocks. My guest this week is Matt Smith, a man who I knew only by reputation from TalkSport, where I've worked off and on over the years and where he was once one of the top producers. I'd heard the legends about Matt, how he'd been a top talent at the station who'd developed a severe gambling addiction that had ruined things for him and many of his colleagues. When he got in touch with me recently, having come across the reset, I was really keen to get to know about his story directly from him. I was delighted to find out that Matt had been sober and bet-free for over six years now. In fact, he now works at a charity that helps people recover from gambling addiction. This was a really enjoyable chat in which we both found a lot of parallels in our experiences of addiction and of working in the extreme pressure of the media. Matt's a smart bloke who let booze and gambling completely ruin his whole life, but who's now recovered and rebuilt that life. Today, we find him a happy, wise, sober and optimistic man. A real inspiration to anyone out there who thinks that all hope is lost. It never is. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Matt Smith, welcome to The Reset. Good to see you, Sam. Good to see you too, mate. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good. Uh, so, so Matt, like you and I never met, but our paths sort of crossed virtually at TalkSport. But I'd started mm. hosting there, I guess, around 2011, and yeah. by which stage you were like the the head of um, what was I was it? in charge head? of outside broadcast. Outside broadcast. Yeah. So, so I wouldn't have seen you much because you would have been off around the country and around the world all the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 2011, I was doing the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand uh, right. in, in kind of September to November of 2011. And then my last job at TalkSport was the um, Euro 2012 the in Poland and Ukraine. Mm. I say my last job, I didn't really do much because actually, you know, it all came to an abrupt end for me at that point uh, in terms of my you know, the madness that had been going on for me had caught up with me and I, I came home, you know. So, um, yeah, and then I, I, I was still at TalkSport for a little while longer, but I wasn't working. They looked after me for a period of time, but um, it wasn't to be for me to go back, unfortunately. So let's go back a little bit. 
I yeah. mean, you, you obviously you 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 went through a career in which you kind of quite senior position, and and what I imagine is extremely stressful and very like huge amount of responsibility being in charge of the amount of outside broadcasting all over the place at major sporting events with big name talent, and you're kind of holding all that together. How much of a role did that stress play in the addictions you developed? Oh, massively, massively. You know, I didn't have much support uh, because, you know, at the time, uh, TalkSport was growing. It wasn't where it is now, you know, under the bigger umbrella and it's, you know, it's owned by one of the big media companies now. So it's got a lot more money going into it and a lot more support. But when I first started there, you know, we were we were up against it, you know, against against the BBC, you know, against Five Live, we, who we perceived just to be our kind of major rivals. Mm-hmm. So we were doing everything on a shoestring, which meant that we didn't have budget for human beings, you know. So yeah. it was me. It was literally on an on an outside broadcast. It was me doing technical stuff, producing the the program itself, uh, doing all the prep involved in that so booking travel hotels all that kind of stuff and then as you say dealing with talent in some cases difficult talent yeah uh, in some cases not so difficult talents and i work with some really nice people as well you know so yeah there was a lot of stress there i mean um I had a lot of happy years there though sam you know uh, i started there in 2001 and i went there pretty much straight from university. I was a technical mm. operator to those who are listening and don't know what that is. Uh, I drove the mixing desk. So you had this big, massive whop-off mixing desk like you see in a Sony recording studio, you know. Mm. And I I was the man who twiddled all the buttons and did all that stuff. And then, you know, slowly but surely, I moved up the ranks. And in 2005, I became program manager. And part of that role was to look, out, look after outside broadcasts. So my first big job was the Champions League final in Istanbul. Um, AC Milan and Liverpool you know what a gig to be at so wow. that, that that was fantastic and you know what I didn't really feel the stress at that point because I was still quite young I was like in my mid-twenties I was enjoying the life you know yeah we'd have a couple of drinks after the game and stuff like that but nothing you know nothing major just what kind of normal people would do you know mm. um, and I guess for me like I, I, it was a constant on the road and there would be a few gigs where I'd have you know, some help with me and I'd have more, more bods. Um, but it really started to take off for me in about 2010, which was the South Africa football world cup. Yeah. You know, and, um, I remember going to, uh, I remember going to a casino in Johannesburg with, with my colleagues and, uh, a couple of ex footballers were there with us as well. Yeah. And it was that kind of, do you know, like, that kind of wanting to keep up. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we're at, we're at the blackjack table gambling and I wanted to keep up with the big boys who clearly had plenty more money, more money than I ever had, you know? Yeah. And I could really feel it at that point starting to get a grip, but I was kind of just ignoring it. Um, I'd go, I'd get back from the casino and then carry on gambling on my laptop and carry on drinking a few beers. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, I've been out all night. I've got work to do tomorrow on a heavy schedule, by the way, we were doing like, you know, 16, 17, 18 hours a day of programming from South Africa. And my job was to manage all of that. So I had about 20 staff with me, presenters, commentators, ex-pros, and I had to move them around the country, you know, yeah. for for a four, for four or five weeks. So there's a lot of stress in, involved in that. And I think, yeah, you know, I think that I turned to 
to drink and gambling during that period to help me kind of to get through it, you know. So it crept up then. It wasn't something that you'd seen. Had you seen signs of, of those sorts of instincts earlier in your life? Well, I mean, you know, I went to university and I was at university in Falmouth in Cornwall. And to be honest with you, I just thought I was being a student, you know, going out drinking pound a pint, Hofmeister, I think it was, you know, real rough stuff, you know, and just thinking, oh, this is what all students do, you know. But if I look back at it, maybe I was always the last to leave. I was always the one who had to have one more. I wasn't the one who could just say, well, I've had enough now, I'm going home. You know, I had to stay for one more. I'd miss lectures the next day, stuff like that. You know, I didn't get a very good grade. I got my degree, but, you know, I didn't come out there in flying colours. And I wonder if there was an effect at that point. You know, I was playing fruit machines a lot as well, Sam. You know, I was in mm. the pub playing fruit machines all the time. So I guess there was some behaviour there. But then when I left and then moved to London and got the job, it was almost like that was all kind of removed for a period of time because I was my, my mind was occupied with something else. It's interesting because uh, I'm very similar. I mean, I was at university and... When I was like, you know, a younger lad, you're doing all that stuff. You think this is just normal lad stuff. This yeah. is what everyone you know, everyone around you is doing it. Yeah. And so you don't see yourself as exceptional at all. And some people kind of remain like that or drift out of it. But the, mm. the funny thing is, it, it is in you sort of lurking, isn't it? And some of us, it just jumps up and takes over. And clearly for you, the trigger by the sounds of things was the, the stress of um that was piled on your shoulders at a relatively young age. I mean, the, all of us with any kind of energy or, or ambition um sort of just take that on, especially when you're in your twenties, because you just sort of think, oh well, this is obviously what I have to do to prove myself. You never, when you're that age, you never stop and go, well, actually, hang on a minute, boss. This yeah. is a little bit too much for me. You yeah. don't want to be that guy, do you? You want to be the guy who just says yes to everything. So you think then I'll show that I'm really willing and capable and energetic. But Ultimately, it bloody it, it comes and um, you pay a price for it, don't you? You do pay a price for just saying, yeah, I can cope and just pretending to everyone that you can cope. Well, yeah, because you're in a cutthroat industry as well, Sam, as you know. You know, you don't want to suddenly say, I can't do this anymore because that is really signaling the end of any kind of career. Mm. You know, um, I was very lucky. My first boss, Bill Ridley, he was a program director when I first joined, was fantastic. Bill was a brilliant guy, you know, um, who's enjoying his retirement now, no doubt. Mm. And, you know, we had a fantastic relationship and he was extremely supportive. But when he left, the company did start to grow. And as it uh, as places start to grow, you have to grow the staff around you. But, mm. you know, that wasn't really happening. And... I'm not saying, by the way, that if they'd have grown and given me a lot more support work-wise, I wouldn't have become like an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. I'm not saying that, but it may well have helped me in some way that the pressure would have been relieved a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, for me, it was. And, you know, you know, as you say, you know the environment and it's a pressure cooker at times. And when you're working with sometimes difficult people, who, uh, you know, perhaps ex, ex-professionals, yeah. uh, that has its own demands as well, you know. So you're not only just doing all the kind of legwork and, and looking at logistics and organisation of things and the technical side of it, but you're also having to kind of micromanage on a day-to-day -day basis. And corral people. 
I mean, yeah. I imagine I've never had to do that side of things, but I've very I've seen it up close and corralling celebrities, which is effectively what a lot of these ex-pros are. Yeah. People with big egos who are very demanding and in some cases, and we won't name names, extremely unpredictable, especially yeah. when you're away in exotic parts of the world. <laughs> it's just an absolute bloody nightmare. Yeah. Um, especially if you're also trying to arrange a, a, a broadcast yeah. back to the UK on yeah. a huge scale. I mean, I can't imagine. Like I say, I'm stressed just hearing you talk about it. We stayed in this lodge in, in Johannesburg, yeah? Mm. And there were about 20 of us in there. And there was a few ex-professionals in there, mm. commentators and the rest of us, production <laughs> guys and so forth. Now, there's always a couple of people that you'd want on a trip with you in the mm. trenches because you know they'd get the job the job done. So, you know, one of my old colleagues, John Norman, you know, he's a fantastic guy. Yeah. John, you'd want in the trenches with you on a production because he would get everything done and he would go, you know to the last hour he would work 24 hours you know if need be then you've got people like you know adrian durham you'd want with you you know and jim proudfoot these kind of people you'd want those people with you to support you because they would support you as well Mm. then you've got a couple of the ex-pros somebody like alvin martin for example i know you're you're a west ham fan sam you know alvin's a legend I'd want him holding my hand in any situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alvin's a complete legend, you know, yeah. and yeah. you'd want somebody like him with you on the trip as well. Mm. Then you'd have, because you're growing as an organization, you would have some people who are probably not so far out of the playing game. So mm. have got a bit more of an ego. Yeah. have probably been doing a little bit more high profile work. They're the people who are going to be very difficult to manage. Um, you know, and then what can happen is you obviously get a bit of conflict within the camp. So you're trying to settle everybody down. Remember that you've got a job to do. And in the end, you realize actually you can't control these people. They're going to do what they want to do. And, you know, it can at times as well, but get get a bit nasty. So, you know, um, what, what happens then? I turn to the drink. Yeah, You know, because I'm like, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, I can't cope with this. Some people in the higher echelons of management don't want to deal with it either because what are they going to do? Fly them out, fly them home, you know, halfway through a major tournament. You know, that's not going to, that's not going to bode well, is it? So, you know, you have all these situations around you going on. It's, uh, uh, you know, look, I don't suppose either of us are here to to criticise talk sport where I like you had a lot of good times and amazing people and you mentioned some of them there just like you know top blokes not only talented but you know just very decent guys you know to be around sort of thing this isn't blaming other people but it must be like almost impossible to sort of you know keep yourself straight in a situation like that well, it is. And also, you know, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm not here to dig them out at all. I had a fantastic time there like you. And, I, you know, I wrote about that recently in the in the 20 years of talks book, you know, when I talked about my addiction, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the CEO was extremely supportive of me when I left. So, you know, I haven't I can't knock that point of view, but there is um, an element of the 
it is a culture in in that world, you know, um, and like it is in in lots of different industries mm. as well. I guess you know, probably in the building trade, you know, for example, everybody goes, yeah. you know, you see all these vans parked outside the pub, don't you? At three o'clock on a oh. Friday afternoon, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was talking to someone the other day about one of the builders who did my roof, and they go, "Oh, mate, scaffolders, scaffold. Everyone's got a different you know, like, worst industry in the world. They're on, they're on the beers at like midday and all of this stuff." And I, I realise every industry thinks that they're the industry who have the worst problem. What I would say about radio, and I've worked in all different aspects of the media at, at some point or another, but radio in particular is very intense pressure, very mm. fast paced. Mm. You know, the live element of most of it puts you under, it puts everyone involved under a sort of pressure that makes them all highly strung. And I've probably seen more losses of temper in radio mm. and more hard drinking in radio than I have in any of the other elements of the British media that I've worked in, you know, whether that's print or TV or, or anywhere else, you know. Radio is it? It's a. It, I tell you, it's a particular sort of atmosphere that can be tremendously exciting and fulfilling and invigorating. But it's a bloody pressure cooker, and people either people are either at the end of the average day on radio either get slaughtered or lose their temper, and sometimes yeah. both. <laughs> oh, completely. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it is a place to to be angry for sure. Mm. You know, you're going to get angry. You're you're under pressure because. First of all, it's live. As a producer, everything's done pretty much, as you know, Sam, to the second or to the minute. Mm. You know, you follow a clock and it all has to be, you know, to time. So when you're on an outside broadcast, particularly, you know, you need to really be on the nail a lot of the time, you know, and that can have its own pressure because as a Producer presenters sometimes like to talk a bit longer yeah. than they should, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm just thinking to myself, it doesn't go to a second when I'm hosting, mate. <laughs> you know, so the, 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 that, and you don't want to fall out with each other, but yeah. you've got to try and assert your kind of, your role onto that person and say, come on, it's time to wrap it up now type thing, you know. Yeah. But there's stuff like that, and yeah, it does have its own pressures. And like you say... Uh, for me, I would go to the pub when I was when I was in London pretty much every night after work, you know. And mm. and I'm not just on about have one pint and go home. This was like sometimes going on till four or five o'clock in the morning, you know, yeah, yeah. going down in the South Bank where Talksport used to be, mm. and we used to go to the um, oh all different places, you know. And sometimes wouldn't get home till the early hours, and then get up again and go again the next day. And then obviously when I was travelling. You know, you'd be out with the you'd be out with the guys after the broadcast or whatever. And again, I was like always the one who just couldn't like finish. Do you know what I mean? I'd yeah. like have to keep going, even though I knew the consequences the next day were going to be. I am not going to be on the top of my game. I'm going to have a stinking headache. Sometimes I wonder how I got jobs done because actually, you know, we achieved so much, particularly after that World Cup I described in 2010. We jumped by half a million in audience figures, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we we did fantastic, you know, on a kind of, you know, a small team. You know, I think the BBC at that event, like radio, had like triple the amount of people we had out there. And we were yeah. putting on more hours of radio every single day, mm. you know. So uh, also they had a lot more experience, you know. I think that their my opposite number at Five Live was probably double my age. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, yeah, now madness. looking back at it, I think to myself, wow, okay, it was a great privilege to be at those events, but really was I ready at that age? 
This is an interesting thing with a lot of um, people I speak to, a lot of addicts that I encounter, is that I, I don't know whether, I hope that my kids have a different attitude towards work to the one that, that we did. Because just going back to that thing where you, you sort of are launched into an environment when you join the adult world and the workplace, particularly in the media, although, like I say, I'm sure it's the same in other industries, where there is an immediate pressure on you to do way more than is actually healthy or natural, right, mm. <laughs> or sustainable. <laughs> and I feel that not just me, everyone I speak to, and particularly lots of other people who struggled with addiction, were just, I don't know whether it was that we were Thatcher's children or what, but there was this sense that the only way you got by was to throw yourself 110% into every single thing that you did, right, and never complain and just keep your head down and eventually you would be rewarded, right? Yeah. And I I don't think my parents ever explicitly said that to me, but I saw I had older brothers who'd approached their careers in exactly the same way and everyone I know who was influential on me just seemed to like that was the way they approached working life. And I think that so many people have a story similar to yours, and mine isn't dissimilar. It was often work and overwork and stress was the trigger for me, is that they just did this for like the first 10, maybe 20 years of their career. And then, you know, something has to give. So some people might have a breakdown. Some people might just jump ship and think, I'm not doing this anymore and go and do something completely different. Mm. But a lot of people think, I can just about sustain this, but not naturally. And so they turned to, in, in my case, I started trying to sustain my insane, unhealthy uh, working life and lifestyle, you know, just sort of self-medicate my way through it. Mm. It never occurred to me, maybe you should be doing less. It was just like, how can I find a way of doing more? And I turned to self-medication to do that. You know, like drinking drugs could, could actually help you for a short amount of time. Then it ends up being like doing the opposite. When, when did, um, when did uh, you start to think this is actually the gambling and the drink is really negatively impacting upon my work performance? Yeah, I think in, in 2011 in New Zealand at the Rugby World Cup, you know, and um, I was working... Um, I was working with Mark Saggers at the time and, uh, you know, uh, Mark has, has come out publicly, you know, and talked about his issues with gambling. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, and, you know, he went, he's been on talk sport and spoken about it and, and done some stuff around that. And uh, he actually had a conversation with me while we were in New Zealand about gambling, but I was so far down the rabbit hole of denial, Sam, mm. I kind of didn't get what he was saying to me. Right. Do, do you know, like, he was trying to perhaps show me the way a little bit. Do you know what I mean? But I couldn't see and I didn't really know what he was saying. So I kind of mm. just, like, almost palmed it off and just carried on. Of course, I wasn't ready either. You know, uh, you have to be ready in this kind of situation, don't you, to to say, yeah. actually, you know, I've had enough now. So it did have an impact on me there. Uh, debt was piling up for me because, you know, uh, we we've, with alcohol, really, it wasn't really a problem because you know, alcohol wasn't so expensive, but gambling habit and a gambling problem is an expensive problem, you know? Because mm. um, what I'm saying is you can only get so drunk before you pass yeah. out. Do you know what I mean? But with gambling, you can just keep keep on going and going and going until you run out of money. Yeah. 
and the thing is as well with gambling, Sam, you've got nothing, there's nothing medicating you. I mean, at least if you're drinking, like you're feeling a bit of a buzz off it or whatever, or you're, mm. you know, you're going to pass out. But with gambling, there, there's nothing to numb the pain. So your head is going a million miles an hour. And and for me, like then I'm thinking, like, how am I going to pay this person back? How am I going to do this? How am I going to live? You know, all this stuff starts to come on top of you. And I think during that period in 2011, that's when it really started to like pile on for me. And and my alcohol consumption went up because I was trying to like medicate from my gambling problem then. Right. So it was just all really, yeah, getting out of control. And um, I mean, I was getting to a point, Sam, where. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, I wasn't even, I didn't even have enough money to get the train to work every day you know, like £3.20 or whatever it was, you mm. know, from Blackheath to, to you know, Waterloo. I mean, that's crazy, you know, when, when I was earning, you know, quite decent money, you know. That's how far down the rabbit hole I'd gone. How secretive was it at this stage? Massively, massively. I mean, I remember talking to my friend about this afterwards when I got into recovering him saying, why did you never talk to me about it? First of all, I didn't know that's what friends were for, like to go to and talk to about this kind of stuff. I thought yeah. they were just there to like borrow money off when I needed it <laughs> or go drinking with or, or yeah. do you know what I mean? You know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. he really, you know, reached out and said, well, that, that's, you know, that's what friends do, mate. You know what I mean? Like we're there to like support each other. And I just didn't know that. And I honestly didn't know that, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, for me, and also, you know, I just wanted to go back on and say something about kind of working in industry now. And I wonder if there's a bit of a change of thinking now in terms of people going into work for places with this kind of more emotional intelligence. Yeah. You know, like if you have got some form of emotional intelligence within you these days, companies, a lot of companies now typically are chasing people down for that kind of uh, having that kind of vibe about them, having that personality mm. about them, because it brings a different dynamic to a workplace. Yeah. And that's something that we, as the position that we're in, we have, you know, because we, yeah. have, you know, we're, we're recovering from, you know, the issues that we faced. I hope so. I mean, God, I mean, I've been in positions before in a, you know, as a, as a boss at some points in my career. And I look back now, having been through what I went through, and think to myself, I, I look back on things and think I was probably as guilty as 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 my bosses have been. I was probably as guilty of pushing people far beyond what was acceptable or healthy for them, because 
it's what had been done to me. And I and I know that I've uttered the words or those kind of tedious words you you always have heard older colleagues say. It's like, well, when I started, we just worked until it was finished and didn't ask questions and all that sort of stuff. And you pass that on. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. I feel guilty about it, but I, I hope you're right. And I, I think, I suspect you're right, is that on the whole, the culture of work is changing. I hope. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, companies are more compassionate and, and try to sort of factor in, you know, mental health and so forth in, into their working practices. Although, as you said, when you did finally, when this all came out and it became more public, what you were going through and that you had these addictions, mm. talk sport, you felt talk sport treated you pretty fairly, right? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, um, I, I flew back. This is this is how deluded I was. Yeah, so I flew back from Poland and Ukraine, and I'm laughing about it now because looking at myself and when I've laughed throughout this podcast, mm. it's because I'm recognising things that we're saying with each other and how yeah. we might have behaved when we were in that kind of zone. You know. Yeah. And for me, I wanted to come home, so. I got a flight booked for me. One of the girls in the office booked a flight for me to come home. And they sent me the details of the flight over. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want that flight. No, I want to watch the England game first. So <laughs> by the way, my, <laughs> my entire world has just blown up. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a piece about me in the Daily Mail. Yeah. Because of all wow. my gambling and everything. Yeah. Mm. And I'm, I'm dictating when I want to come home. <laughs> my God. You know, so I'm looking back at that now and I'm laughing because I'm laughing at my own madness. That's what mm. I'm laughing at. You know, how I behaved at that point. You know, um, so yeah, they looked after me brilliantly. You know, uh, I went to stay with Ronnie Arane, former yeah. cricketer, former Essex and England cricketer. Ronnie's a great guy. Ronnie said, come and stay with me. I went and stayed with Ronnie. And, you know, Ronnie wanted to help me. You know, Ronnie wanted to get me sober and and stop me from gambling. But the condition of me staying with him was like I had to stop gambling. But, you know, yeah. I couldn't because like, I was an addict, you know, and it doesn't work like that, does it, Sam? Do you know what I mean? Right. You can't just, like, stop, you know. So I went to counselling. Talk Sports sent me to counselling. I went to this... Um, big house out in Essex in the in the countryside. I remember sitting in this lady's uh, like kind of study area with these pristine green lawns. You know, like you see that somebody's cut them with a pair of scissors. You know, yeah, yeah. That there, this lady's asking me all about myself and my background and everything, thinking, "What the hell am I doing here? Like, yeah. I've got no idea what I'm supposed to be talking to this woman about." You know started talking about my, you know, stuff that had gone on for me when I was younger, which has got nothing to do with it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. just like, I don't know, because I didn't have anything to talk about. I was kind of almost making stuff up. What was the moment where you actually did start to embrace? You talk about your encounter there with a therapist and thinking you just couldn't get your head straight. And people had made attempts. So you could talk about Mark Saggers, Roddy Arani, this therapist, and you, you just, your head wasn't ready and you didn't embrace it. No, then I wasn't one day, hearing it. Then one day you did. So what, what happened? Well, so what happened was, so when I was staying with Ronnie, Ronnie introduced me to a guy called Paul Spanger. Paul Spanger runs the Providence Project in Bournemouth Treatment mm. Centre for Addiction. And Paul met me in London. We had a chat for an hour and he planted some seeds. But again, I wasn't really hearing what he said. But then two years later, I'd heard what he said. So I'd been out in Brazil. I'd got myself into a complete mess out in Brazil. I ended up uh, staying. Like, so the football finished in July. 
but I didn't actually come home to the UK until October, I think. I got home, went and stayed with somebody I knew in Birmingham who I hadn't spoken to for like 20 years and just randomly like hit them up and said, can I come and stay with you? I've got nowhere else to go. Because literally your contacts book in your phone, had, you went for it and no name. You, no. Everyone was off limits. Nobody wanted to know anymore, Sam. And rightly so. Do you know what I mean? Like all of my behavior, my everything that I'd done, my mm. destruction, like who, nobody trusted me. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. You know, that was it. I was stuck. Like, and I was so fearful of speaking to my mum because I put her through the mill by not speaking to her for so long. And I thought, how can I do this now and say, and phone her after like probably nine, 10 months and say, I need money to get home. I just couldn't do it. Mm. I was stuck. I was backed into a corner. And what happened was I was sleeping on this floor at this guy's house, yeah? Mm. And I was just getting drunk all the time, smoking weed. So, by the way, let's just rewind. I was living in London, earning good money, living in a nice flat, traveling the world, watching sport for a living. Then I ended up with one bag and and this pop-up bed, basically, yeah? Wow. Yeah, not showering for days on end. All this kind of stuff was going on. Yeah. Didn't have any hope and I just woke up one morning and I had what I can only describe as a an extended moment of clarity right and I thought I cannot live like this anymore I do not want to live like this anymore I've had enough and I got in touch with Paul Spanger the Providence Project who I'd met previously as I spoke about in London two years previously yeah Paul remembered me and said Matt get to London uh get to Bournemouth sorry come to Bournemouth we'll 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 take you and my old colleague, John Norman, my, you know, who's one of my closest friends, got me the train ticket to come to Bournemouth, you know. Um, and he had to phone them to check I was coming. This is the thing, you know, I said about nobody wanting to know. Yeah. But John didn't know. I mean, John just thought, oh, is this another, what's he up to now? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, what's going on now? Because you, you, well, you told lots of people lies in order yeah, to get yeah, money to go. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, 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 completely, you know. And so he had to check and rightly so. And he rang them and then he sent me the ticket and said, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. And, you know, John and I now, by the way, are like super close, you know, because, Brilliant. you know, he was there for me when I needed him. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And he came and visited me in treatment in Bournemouth. And that's a true friend, you know, who sticks by you. For it is, but it's tough times. being a friend, isn't it? To people who are in this situation because well, he thought could- I was going to die. Right. He told yeah. me that. He said, I thought you were going to die. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. But he stuck with you because, uh, uh, you know, if anyone has been close to someone who is an addict and was got sucked into just the complete lying and, and in the end, to protect your own sanity and sobriety, you do have to just walk away, don't you? Oh, 100%, Sam. You know, I mean... Um, I, you know, obviously I've been sober at uh, my last bet was six and a half years ago, actually six and a half years ago yesterday. Oh, congratulations, mate. Yeah. Thanks. And you know what I do now, you know, I work for a charity, Mm. you know, how fantastic is that helping people now? Do you know what I mean? That's what the gift I've been given, you know, and there's lots of stuff to, you know, I could talk about around that and, um, for those, you know, I have tried where possible to make amends to people and apologize for my behaviors and not just apologize, but also, you know, do what needs to be done in order to rectify those wrongs. It's not always possible because 
a some people don't want to know mm. you know and that shouldn't be forced upon them uh but actually you know what i would say in the main most people have been really really supportive um and have been like when i've told them they've been like wow well done you do you know what i mean for like mm. getting back you know because it could have ended really badly i mean people don't i don't you know like you're saying like i wonder if people really understand addicts sometimes so when i was doing things i knew were wrong it was like an out of body experience sam yeah I, I i couldn't stop myself from doing them yeah this isn't like a deliberate act on hurting somebody hurting people that are close to you you don't want to do it no you cannot stop that's what addiction is yeah i mean that it's a demon that's taken over you yeah i mean you know i i, I always say to people who like have had cocaine problems i always go no one has ever enjoyed taking cocaine. It's not enjoyable. You hate it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's funny you should say that because actually I remember when I was in treatment and I spoke to John who I've been talking about and I, I'm, I'm sure it was, uh, I said to him, oh, cause I went for gambling. That was my problem. Yeah. Mm. You know, I thought was my problem until I realized I had an alcohol problem as well. And I said to John, like, oh, they're telling me here that I've got a problem with alcohol. <laughs> You know, like they're telling me this, you know, and I don't believe it type thing. Mm. And he said, quite bluntly, if I remember, well, you have. Yeah. You know, you were always last to leave. You did blah, 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 you know. And that was like the kind of almost like the moment where I thought, oh, okay. That was the light bulb moment. Okay. Well, maybe I have then, you know, because when you, when you stop, and I'd had that period of probably three or four weeks sober at that point when I spoke to him about this. Yeah. Your thinking does start to become the fog lifts and you start to become like a kind of normal thinker again. Yeah. And normally I'd have said, no, I don't believe you. That's a load of rubbish. But it actually started to sink in at that point. Yes, there, there is a problem there. What's your advice for people who are struggling or... What about the people who, who are still in that phase, which some must go through for a long time, where they're it's sort of they're sick their habit, whatever that might be, is still secretive and they're trying to work out alone whether or not they've actually got a problem that they need to go and address. Hmm. It's always difficult to give advice because you don't ever want to kind of give the wrong advice, Sam. Do you mm. know what I mean? But what I would say is talk to somebody that you trust. I think mm. that's important. And whether that's, you know, perhaps a phone line or, I mean, if, you know, for example, like with, with gambling, you know, does, does GamGare or the National Treatment, um, National Gambling Treatment Service helpline, you know, it's 24 hours, seven, you know, phone line where they won't, you wouldn't be judged and it might just help you come to, a kind of answer in your own mind whether there's a problem there or not i found it really difficult to say the words i've got a problem mm. if somebody had come to me and said i think you've got a problem that may well have opened the conversation a little bit more does that make sense yeah, yeah for yeah. me to actually say those words i found really difficult so I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And by the way, I'm just talking out loud, but we were talking about uh, like in a bookmakers, for example, how do you tell the staff in there that perhaps you've got a problem and you want to, um, you want to buy yourself, ban mm. yourself from there. Mm. I would have found it so difficult to go up to them and say, I've got, I think I've got a problem with this. You know, can you, can you ban me? Mm. 
But perhaps if there was some kind of like, you know, like a secret word I could have used and said yeah. to them this word, yeah. it might have opened a conversation. You know, like what's happening now with like domestic abuse and things like that. Yeah. You go into a shop, you mention this word and somebody will come and have a conversation with you. Yeah. That might have opened the door. But my advice to people is perhaps think about, I mean, what I do now, Can I, I don't know if you mind me just talking briefly about what I do. Not at all. Uh, so, I, I, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. Yeah. So I work for a charity called Bet No More. And mm. part of the charity, we um, we have a part of us called Peer Aid. And what we do is Peer Aid is um, a service where we have experts by experience. So volunteers who have lived experience of gambling who basically offer their time up and speak to people who feel that they need help. So those people would go through GamCare, be referred uh, to us by their practitioner, and then we would offer this service so that they they have somebody to talk to in a safe space. You know, um, they, they don't have to have stopped gambling. They may well still be gambling, but we meet those people where they're at. Now, mm. that was always a thing for me I found really difficult was like, hang on a minute, for me to go to any kind of meetings and things like that, which I do, uh, I, you know, I do go to meetings, mm. Have I got to have stopped? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because sometimes, yeah. like, you actually want to go, but you haven't stopped. Yeah. And I think that these, like, places should be a little bit more open to mm. the fact that you've got to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And then hopefully take them to a place that gets them into sobriety and recovery. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like the help's only there for you once you've gone some way to overcome it by yourself on your own which is extremely difficult yeah extremely and, also, difficult. and also sam i don't know what you think about this but i've been thinking about more and more recently the stigma of 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 the word alcoholic and compulsive yeah. gambler now the meetings i go to i refer to myself as that mm. but i'm actually becoming a little bit more i don't know like i believe it i know i mm. that is my problem but Am I enforcing the stigma by saying those words? You know, and I wonder sometimes. And by the way, those those meetings don't say you don't have to say those words. Mm. It's just I've kind of got into the habit of saying them. Mm. But I wonder if if that enforces the stigma. You know, if if you could go to a meeting and you didn't, I, know, I mean, I know there's stuff like smart recovery, for example, where you don't, they don't, you don't have to identify. Uh, you just talk about perhaps what your DOC is, your drug of choice. Mm. You don't have to identify as anything, which I think is really helpful because for some people that don't want to go into a room and say they're an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Personally, I've spent the I spent the first few years of sobriety playing it down to anyone who asked. I wouldn't talk about it much, but if it came up and people said, Do you want a beer or whatever? I go, I don't drink anymore. Yeah. And people always say, Oh, really? Why is that? You didn't have a problem, did you? Because I was the sort of person who a lot of people apart from those very close to me who saw it all too closely, you know, there was a lot of sort of casual friends and acquaintances who just wouldn't have ever thought that this had gone beyond just normal drinking or, or drug taking. Actually, the point about the stigma is that when somebody describes themselves as an alcoholic, they're mm. a human being. Yeah. They're a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, mm. a doctor, a fireman, Whatever they make. my doctor is 25 years sober. Yeah. You know what I mean? That blew the stigma of an alcoholic straight out when I yeah. came into Bournemouth and he said to me, Matt, I'm 25 years sober. 
Yeah. Wow. That's my GP talking to me. He knew mm. what he was talking about, you know. Yes. Actually, perhaps that's what we need to do with the thinking around it is actually talk about more things like you're more than an addict, you're more than an alcoholic, you're more than a compulsive. Guy. And also it's about people, you know, alcoholic still to many people means a guy on a park bench who's wet his pants, right, and yeah. is sleeping under a newspaper, yeah. right? Or even if they are not quite that bad, it's like, well, he's a family man, but he downs a bottle of scotch every night and throws up on the carpet during EastEnders or whatever it is, right? That is not – there are a million different types of addict. People don't – first of all, you don't have to feel as if people are going to judge you as – if we all can say, no matter what we're like, who, what we look like, how we behave, we can all say, this is what an alcoholic looks like, right? And you realise that it's not just always that guy who's wet his pants on a park bench, right? Mm. Come in all different shapes and sizes. I think that's, I think that's a, you know, it's a pretty powerful thing. It also alerts people as well who are addicts but functioning addicts that, you know, they don't have to wait until that rock-bottom moment when they are arrested, or, yeah, like they shit them shit their pants or whatever it is. The things that you think are, are the indicators of being an addict. Mm. It kind of reminds people. Do you know what? I looked to a lot of people. I looked perfectly normal and functioning. I was getting on with a you know reasonably successful career. But I can tell you that the whole time I was sort of secretly off my nut. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it sort of alerts people. Like you know. There are 101 or a million and one different versions of an addict out there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think also the other thing is, as well, we haven't really touched upon that much, is that we talked about alcohol and cocaine and gambling Mm. and things, but actually they were kind of like the symptoms of the problem. Yeah. The problem was actually like me and my behaviour and Mm. my head. I call Mm. it stinking thinking. That's my Instagram, mm. by the way, if anybody wants to find me, at Stinking Thinking. Great. And that's my, like, you know, for me, it's all about, because I haven't, I haven't had a drink and I haven't had a bet for six and a half years, but mm. I've still got a problem with myself, Sam. Yeah, so yeah. We were just talking before we started this, weren't we, about slowing the brain down a bit, yeah. doing a bit less. And that's our problem, mm. you know, that we are, I mean, I think you are perhaps, and I certainly am a perfectionist. You know, mm. I like everything to be fantastic. And I've had to let a lot of that stuff go and say, you know mm. what? It's never going to be perfect. And that mm. starts to slow my brain down a little bit then. I can't mm. control other people and places and things and stuff like that. I just have to accept that they're going to go and do their stuff. And I just have to get on with my thing. And a lot of my kind of recovery has re- revolved around behaviours and gaining that uh, self-awareness and emotional intelligence and kind of trying now to focus on debunking those myths and stigmas of, you know, like just being, you know, that brown paper bag sitting on a park bench stuff, you know, and actually getting to the nitty gritty of what's really going on, which is upstairs in my brain. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. This is that what we're trying to do with the reset, which is why this has been such a great chat. And I'm delighted that you, you've been the guest this week on the show, mate. I, I really appreciate it. Could carry this on for another hour, but let's wrap it up for now. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming on. All the best and congratulations on, on your six and a half years of sobriety, mate. Nice one. Thanks, Sam. Well, there you go, Matt Smith. I really enjoyed getting to know him better and hearing his story from the horse's mouth. 
As you heard, he's an intelligent and insightful and kind bloke with more self-awareness than most these days. In some ways, that can be the gift of addiction. It puts you through hell, yes, but if you manage to reach out for help and recover, you can come back a much better person than you might have been in the first place. If you want to know more about his charity, visit betnomore.org.uk. That's bet, K-N-O-W-M-O-R-E.org.uk. And other links to helpful resources are, as always, available on samdelaney.substack.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. Ta-da. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.